0: Welcome to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. And today is an incredibly powerful episode with Craig Stanlin. We yes, this is a long one. Just be ready. We got we dove in deep to his story. Craig has an incredible story. He's a coach, a reinvention architect, the author of the soon to be published memoir, The Blank Canvas, and a highly sought after public speaker with the TEDx talk titled How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. His mission is to help people whose lives have fallen apart, who want to start over, rebuild, and reinvent themselves so that they can have an extraordinary life that they've always wanted. Craig and I dove in deep on this. We really dove in deep. We dove into the emotions he experienced, what he went through, the decisions that he made, how he ended up in the position that he did, how he almost lost his life, how he turned his life around, how he found purpose in his pain what he has done to work through shame and how he shares that the power of vulnerability. We just really, really got into such a deep powerful conversation and I'm so proud of him and I'm so grateful that our paths crossed because this is the entire point and the whole purpose of this podcast and this platform is the power of sharing our stories and what we can do when we share our stories and how we are so much more alike than different and how our pain and our emotions tie us together as humans completely. So I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode because it is so crazy powerful. Welcome to the show today, Craig.
1: Thank you, Marsha. I am very excited to be here.
0: I am I am beyond excited to have this conversation because I feel like we've got a little bit of our, how we speak, there's like a male and female version of us right now having very similar words in conversation. Not too many times have I heard somebody say, own your story. And I think everything you do is just about owning your story.
1: I think owning our story is just so critical to living a fulfilling life and to being happy and to a lot of times when we... When we're hiding from our story, it's because we're hiding because of shame. Mm
2: -hmm. And then that shame
1: just starts ruling and dictating our lives. So when we own our story, we step out of that prison cell. That Mm -hmm. shame really is. And that's just so important to to own it. When When we own our stories, we own our lives. When our stories own us, we don't own our lives.
0: You just you just love it, absolutely love it. Trust me, people who listen to the show all this time are going to go, where did he come from? Because he sounds like you. It's just, I think it's awesome. I just think it's awesome. So let's get, um, we'll get into it. And I want to let people know a little bit more about you. Where are you from?
1: Brooklyn, New York.
0: Brooklyn, are you a reader?
1: Avid, avid reader. Okay. I, I absolutely love reading. Um, right now, I am reading. So I I reread a tremendous amount. If a book impacts me, if something is, if something strikes me, I'm not going to just read it and let it fall by the wayside. I want to immerse myself in it and to consume the content. So I'm rereading "Choose Yourself" by James Altucher, and "The War of Art" by Stephen Pressfield. So I'm rereading those two right now. And then I am also, I will grab the Bhagavad Gita, the translation by Stephen Mitchell. I'll read a few passages out of that and the Tao Te Ching, also the Stephen Mitchell translation. So I will read a couple passages out of that every day as well.
0: Wow. I like the rereading piece. I think we spoke about this, but most people don't realize we actually had a conversation last week. We could have recorded a podcast last week too, based on our conversation, but I love it. We talked about the War of Art and the Stephen Pressfield book. What is the one takeaway that resonates with you about that book? I love that book.
1: God, I love that book, and I have to recommend the follow-up. Turning Pro is just huge, I just, just amazing. It. Thank it's you just, for the
0: recommendation. I just bought it.
1: I, I, th- I think you're going to absolutely love it. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. the The biggest takeaway from The War of Art for me is just the analysis of resistance and how resistance comes into our lives when we when we want to do something. And I love the way that Pressfield will say, it's not just writing a book, it is if you want to start a family, if you want to start a business, if you, you have an inherent desire to do something and that resistance kicks in, whether it be procrastination, fear, whatever it is, that's that resistance and his analysis of that, A, that it's completely normal, B, that it's defeatable, and C, this is the most important part. When we feel that resistance towards something, that is a compass telling us exactly where we need to go.
0: I love the compass analogy. I love that. And I just, there are times I catch myself feeling a lot of resistance. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, is this, this is actually a message to pay attention to what's happening over here. Whereas earlier on, it would be like, oh my gosh, that's scary. Let's stay away from that. Now it's like, oh, I think there's something here. I think there's something here to follow.
1: That's such a dynamic shift to be able to experience that, to to take that fear and not run away from it, but to just, even to just stop and to acknowledge it and say, is this a message that's telling me something? I'm not going to sit here and profess that I act upon every single piece of resistance that I feel. I don't step to the challenge every single time, but to have the awareness to even look at it and say, this could be telling me something Mm -hmm. as opposed to immediately going to my old default of running from it, you know, running from the fear, but -hmm. at least just stopping and coming at it from a place of neutrality and just saying, what are you, what are you trying to tell me?
0: That's so powerful. That's so powerful. Do you have a favorite quote or something that you live by or some, um, whether it's a mantra or something that is just really speaks to you?
1: Oh God! Do we have how long do we have? Do we have to <laughs> be a three-hour
0: three podcast.
1: <laughs> do, we, gonna, do, we, do we have twenty-four hours? The, so I will I will do this as quickly as I pos, as possibly can. My mantra is to live fully, connect deeply, and impact many. Mm-hmm. That is the purpose of my life. That is my that is my mantra. When I get a little bit off center, I come back to that. And each one of those components means something very specific to me. And the really magical part of that for me is the the living fully portion is really because when I do that, that is what allows me to connect to many. And when I connect to many, then I can impact. So it really does start at that that first part of that living fully. And it's, it's all the stuff that we've already spoken about, really. It's facing that resistance. It's doing things that scare me. It is putting myself out there, you know, um, trying to say yes as much as possible. If I want to say no, why is it that I want to say no? And just analyzing those things. I could go really so deep on the living fully portion, but I'll jump into my favorite quotes. I actually have tattooed on my ribs. The impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes the way. Marcus Aurelius.
0: Oh, my God. Goodness. Can you repeat that again one more time?
1: The impediment to action advances the action. What stands in the way becomes the way. And I just, that is so meaningful and powerful to me, obviously, that I have it tattooed on my ribs. Uh, They also, Viktor Frankl, Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to get it 100% correct, so I apologize, but everything can be taken from a man except for the last of the greatest freedoms his ability to choose his own way to choose one's own attitude mm-hmm. i'm getting that slightly wrong but that is extremely powerful as well and then one more victor frankl is in between stimulus and response there is a space within that space lies our growth and our freedom oh.
0: and those- I love that one. I don't know if I've heard that one, but I love that one because that's the, like how we react and respond is dictates everything. And when you're in the early stages, if you haven't really done the work for personal growth, we tend to have stimulus, react, stimulus, react, stimulus, react. Like we jump into reaction. But when you work on and understand that I don't need to react that way, it's my choice how I respond.
1: And, and you, you use the I mean the perfect word, it's the respond. It's mm-hmm. respond versus react.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: React
1: mm-hmm. is just this instinctual, quick, immediate jumping all over it. Uh, a lot of times it's going to be a fear-based response. It's going to be something that triggers us and we jump right into that reaction mode, whereas a response, as you said, is a choice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Somebody cool. said X, Y, and Z, I choose to respond with A, B, C. Mm-hmm. And it's that's really where we do get that freedom and we do step into our personal power when we're able to choose our responses.
0: Yeah, there's so much there. That's such a great thing. I love that you shared that. Before we dive into your story, I want to know what the word ownership means to you. Today, right now, what does the word ownership mean to you?
1: Freedom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Ownership means freedom freedom to me. And I'll expand on that even a little bit further. It's two of my other favorite words, the agency Mm -hmm. and autonomy. And ownership is to be able to have ownership over over one's life, to have agency over one's life, to be able to choose the direction of one's life. And that is freedom. And I think that is something that is so inherently deep in so many of us and so important. I, I personally believe a lot of times when people will say when I speak with clients or so, you know, what is it you want? I want to be happy.
2: Mm -hmm. Well,
1: do you like ice cream? Yeah, I like ice cream. Well, here's an ice cream cone. You're happy. What happens when it's done? You know, (laughs) I think really what's behind that is going to be it's freedom. I think a lot of times what we, what we really strive for is just that freedom to live life on our own terms Mm -hmm. and ownership allows us to do that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love that. We're obviously going to dive into that I want to know what drives you now. Like what drives you, before we jump into your story, what, what drives you? What lights you up? What get, keeps you going right now? What is something that drives you to show up as you do now? Storytelling. Mm-hmm.
1: The, the importance of storytelling and how we can use our stories to be of service to others. And I think that is just, it's so powerful. And so again, it's a form of freedom to be able to do that. But I love the art of storytelling. That's part of the reason I'm such an avid reader. And it's part of the reason I love doing what I do because I get to i get to convey my story in service of others. Because I, I think what's so critically important, we were chatting a little bit before we started recording and it's not everybody nobody's going to really have the same story. We're, we're all unique and individual and our stories are unique and individual. However, the emotions that we experience as a result of our stories, those are universal. Happiness pretty much feels the same for everybody. Shame pretty much feels the same for everybody. We all have our nuances, but I bet you if you ask somebody what shame feels like, how it manifests in their body, I bet you it's a pit of the stomach, a tightening of the of the heart, and maybe a little bit of flush in the in the cheeks. Mm-hmm. I think that's so many of us have that same thing. We can all relate to that. And storytelling is that vehicle that is that allows for that emotion to come through,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and so
1: that we can connect and that we can bond over the emotion. So that that that's what drives me.
0: I I love it with the storytelling, and I always say that we are so much more alike than different. We are so much more alike than we think we are. Like most of us are. The more we try and avoid certain situations, certain people, certain whatever it is, I mean, we're just more alike. More of us, we are as human beings. Um, you are. There's so many things that are very powerful about your story. And I really want to give you the space to be able to share it and then ask you some of the questions, especially your turning points and what you came through. So tell us a little bit, back us up in your story before 2013 and tell us what led to how the rest of your story unfolded.
1: So I'll go back to 2012. In 2012, I was an extremely successful sales executive for a technology firm. I dealt with all the largest financial firms in the world, all the largest banks, all the largest hedge funds. In my best year of sales, I produced $21 million in revenue. Wow. Just on my, on my own completely by myself, did not have, I had an engineer that supported me on the technical aspects, but I had no other you know, internal support. The, the financial success that I was able to achieve from that allowed me to own multiple homes. Mm-hmm. I drove beautiful, stunning cars. I had amazing watches. I ate at the best restaurants in Manhattan and in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is one of the wealthiest towns on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I was a VIP at a few of those restaurants. I lived what many would call was the life. I was married to an unbelievable, amazing, and beautiful woman. And it was, from the outside, some would say the American dream. Some would say that I had it all. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: on the surface, I certainly did. But underneath all of that was this massive sense of inadequacy that I was not worthy of my success, that I was not worthy of my amazing and beautiful wife. I, I would go to our national sales meetings. I was I was consistently number one, two, or three in the company. And I was so fearful at these meetings that I was going to get called out as being an imposter, that I had no business doing what I was doing. And it just was so gut-wrenching and filled me with such an emptiness that just hollowed me out inside. Where,
0: can I ask you, where, where does that come from? Like, where does that kind of um, sense of not being worthy to that level, where do you think that comes from? Or is that something you always were challenged with?
1: I feel it's something that I've always been challenged with. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I
1: feel like it definitely was. And I think, you know, I've been, I've been working on trying to assess exactly where it came from, in a sense, trying to find genesis, if you will. You know, what was the the birth of this, which has been very difficult for me to place. And yeah. I don't know if I'm chasing something that doesn't need to be chased.
0: And I was just going to say, I was just going to say, it doesn't need to be chased. It's not a case of blame. It's more of a, like, where where does that come from? Because, or maybe it's a case of, having what everybody would think is the American dream, but maybe that wasn't even what you wanted. And that's why the sense of being feeling imposter, just curious if that was something that was always there or what, but that's you're living in this world where we're talking like it's normal for millions. It's normal for VIPs at restaurants. And maybe that's, who knows? Who knows? Sorry. Sorry. sorry, I just wanted to dive in and ask that question.
1: No, I'm so thrilled that you did because it's actually, it brings up a really good point. I, I didn't like what I did. I did not like my job. I liked the lifestyle that it afforded me, Mm -hmm. but the job itself was a misery. And I had always wanted to create my own business. I wanted to be more artistic. I always had a dream of writing a movie or a book. And I had these ideas, and I would share them with, you know, girlfriends I was dating or my wife, and they would just be like, "Wow, you should really write that." And I never did. And it was living in a sense, two separate lives of having this unbelievable dream, but not having the courage to go for it Yeah. because I had so much. And at the time it was, it felt a very all or nothing proposition. Like I have to give everything to my job. Mm -hmm. And if I was to, let's say, try to write a movie, it means I have to give up my job 100%, which is not true, but it Mm -hmm. felt very much that way. So I, I threw myself into the job. I threw myself into the lifestyle threw myself into buying those things and just being able to walk into, you know, my, my jewelry store where I had, I had a watch guy, you know, I had a, a guy that I would order and sometimes wait two years for this special edition watch to come out. And wow. you know, I could go in and drop 12 grand without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. That became my identity. Yeah being able to buy those things being able to walk into any restaurant and order whatever bottle of wine it became my identity my identity became inextricably tied to my things
2: mm-hmm. and
1: really going back to what we were just chatting about it's you know what i was trying to do was was fill a broken vessel with my things and i couldn't see that i there was that was impossible that was never going to happen So what does that end up doing? That ends up creating this mentality of, well, when I buy something, I feel better for a second. Well, it goes away. What do I do? Well, I'll buy something else. I'll buy something else. So and it's, it's not starts,
0: fixing anything, but it's it's the solution that you're doing at this time, right? And I, you, you mentioned the broken glass filling. I think is a beautiful analogy in the sense that you're just filling and filling and filling, but there's like cracks in the glass. It's not it's not fulfilling. It's just it's, temporary.
1: It's just purely temporary, and it becomes a bit addictive.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's that quick dopamine fix. It's that quick quick shot of worth and enough. And oh, look at me! I can do these things. And it, it, it fades, but then you, you know, you want more. I wanted more. So I I definitely got myself into this pattern and this pattern started increasing at the same exact time that the products that I would sell became more commoditized. So the margins on them were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. So I've got this inverse bar graph. You have one one you know, axis going up, the other axis coming down, Mm -hmm. that's not a good combination. I had started at the very bottom of my, of my company, of the corporate job. I started from the, from the inside. And this is relevant because it actually taught me how the entire system works. I knew the entire ins and outs of how the entire system that I worked in and our partner company, how their system worked. And I started noticing this pattern that I that I picked up on. I I started thinking about it and thinking about it. And I started putting the pieces together. And I realized this pattern, this puzzle, this thing that I'm figuring out, this will solve my financial problems. And what that was was me identifying and exploiting for lack of a better word, a loophole in our partner company's warranty policy that I exploited for my financial gain. And I committed this fraud for just under 10 months until the FBI on October 1st, 2013, called me and left me the following voicemail. It said, Mr. Standland, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately, or we will issue a warrant with the federal marshals. And that is the day that my life completely changed.
0: Mm-hmm. I, and how can I ask you um, the feelings that day? What were some of your first immediate feelings that I know what this is? I know this is, I know what's happened. Or was it uh, how, like, what were your emotions that day?
1: A roller coaster. A, a roller coaster all downhill. <laughs> there was no, there were no ups. It was all downhill. The first thing that I thought when I got that voice message, so my crime was the series of choices. It was all done through my laptop, which means I had to click the mouse button. I had to click the enter button. They were all a series of choices to do that. Every single choice that I made to hit that enter button, to click that mouse button, my heart spoke to me. And it said, do not do this. This is not the way. I did know better. And I ignored that voice. I committed the fraud, like I said, for just under 10 months. The the amount of choices that had to be made to continue this fraud for that long probably goes into the thousands. Mm -hmm. And I ignored my voice thousands of times. So the first thing that I felt when I got that voicemail was, I told you so.
0: Isn't that interesting? It's almost like your soul at this point saying, I, I knew this was coming. I knew it was coming. Like this is a, yeah. What a, what an internal, I mean, thank you for being, I'm going to say it a thousand times. Thank you for being so open and transparent. But what an internal struggle your soul and body must have kind of gone through at that point to go, don't do this, but then you do it, but don't do this, but then you do it. It just doesn't see a way out. So now what happens next?
1: What happens next is I have to, the FBI attracted me for a little while. They didn't realize, though, that I had started a new job. Our biggest competitor had wooed me away with a very aggressive base base salary uh, bump up. And so I was, my old job, I used to work out of the house. Mm -hmm. They were anticipating that I would be in the house when they raided it. I had just started this new job. I was going into the office. So I drove from our home in Connecticut into Manhattan. And I got the voicemail right when I walked into the office. So I had oh. to turn around and leave. I had a, it's approximately a 45 minute to an hour drive home of driving into complete unknown,
2: mm-hmm. no
1: idea what was going on. There was, you know, it's so interesting that you said the, the tearing of the soul. Well, the, the part of me that ignored my heart on the drive home, I'll never forget, was going, this is some kind of misunderstanding. I'll sort it out when I get home.
0: I'll fix it.
1: I'll fi- I'll fix it. That's exactly right. The FBI does not raid a house. No. On, on an accident. No. This is very not fluke. It's not a fluke. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great way of saying it. And but I still have this this false optimism driving home and driving into the unknown. I called my wife to see what was going on. You know, It took her six to seven rings before she could pick up the phone. And the first thing out of her mouth was, Craig, what's happening? And the heartbreak and the sadness in her voice, it ripped through me
2: mm-hmm. because I also I
1: had no answer. I had no answer for her. Um, I, I called my father to, to let him know what's going on. I had to figure out how to get an attorney. I don't have a criminal attorney on file. No, you know, it's not, <laughs> no. You know, it's not something I have. But I did own multiple you know, homes, so I had a real estate attorney. So mm-hmm. I called up my real estate attorney. Fortunately, they had a white-collar attorney who worked in their office, and, and I was able to re- arrange representation. So I got some stuff taken care of on the drive home, and I'm very grateful for that. But I, I drove into what looked like a movie scene. It, it was straight out of a movie scene. When the FBI comes, they come... Full force, there were approximately it was probably anywhere from 10 to 15 vehicles.
2: Wow, unmarked
1: cars, local police cars. There was something that looked almost like a SWAT truck. They were all out there wearing their blue jackets with the yellow FBI lettering. And I was, I remember actually saying to myself, they actually do wear those jackets, you it's not just on jacket. TV, they do wear those jackets. Um, yep. you know, and I, I, I i came into our community we lived in a gated community i came through the gate and i made the, the right hand turn down the hill and that's actually when i saw that whole scene and it was just pure paranoia pure terror of,
2: I can't oh,
1: my, oh my god the reality of this
2: mm-hmm.
1: they they controlled my car with their bodies to put me into a parking spot they controlled my movement as i opened up the car door they didn't want me springing up out of the car and it was immediately identify yourself, turn around. They frisked me, turn back around, empty the contents of your pockets into the front seat. A guy comes running over with a Ziploc bag, starts inventorying everything, and they they told me I was being arrested for one count of mail fraud. And the agent pulled out the handcuffs, and I'll never forget it. I was looking was looking around, and I could I could see my neighbor Carl peeking through the curtains. And when we made eye contact, he ducked away like he was a child. Yeah. They got caught at something. Yeah. And the agents got the handcuffs in his hands. And I looked at him and I said, look at me. I'm not a threat. You mm-hmm. don't have to do this. You don't have to put handcuffs on me. Because I knew that handcuffs were, to me, that was, that was the finality yeah. of it. To be handcuffed to the this. This is real.
0: Like, this is real. This is wrong. This is like, yeah, no turning back now.
1: Yeah. And I said, and for the listeners, I'm five foot four. At the time I was 140 pounds.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm not a
1: big guy. I'm not a threat. And I was really banking on that. And he said, it's procedure. We have to turn around. And they snapped the cuffs on and the sound of handcuffs going around your wrist Mm -hmm. has to be one of the most visceral, powerful sounds in the world. Mm -hmm. And they were heavier than I thought they would be. And they just sat on my wrists. So heavy and then I knew it was over. I knew it had caught up with me.
0: So what happens next? What happens next?
1: We we I get put into an unmarked car. Mm -hmm. There's an agent in the front seat, there's one in the back. He begins questioning me, making sure that it's not a conspiracy. You know, I wanted to make sure that I was the only one involved. You know, he asked who else was involved? Nobody was involved. Don't lie to me. We found multiple toothbrushes in your guest bathroom. We know that other people are involved. You know, there's no way that one person could perpetuate this fraud by themselves. It's, it's impossible. I said, no, it was only me. He then said, this one, this one really hurts. He then said, I don't know, language. Can I use language oh, on? The-
0: absolutely on mine, for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he said, how about that pretty little fucking wife of yours? Oh, And it just, you know, I I think it was, it it was, it was a tactic and I understand what he was trying to do, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but that hurt so much that she would even be considered for that because she had absolutely nothing to do with it. And I'm sitting in the back of this car with my arms behind my back, completely helpless. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I'm not going to lie. I wanted to punch him in the face, but there was nothing I could do. I was completely Filled with terror and helpless, and I just sat there and said she had nothing to do with it, and I couldn't have been more vehement about it. Thankfully, he let it go. Mm-hmm. Then it was another series of questions: of, Where were you on nine eleven? One of my clients was. One of my clients was devastated by the attacks on the Trade Center, and every year they run a charity event on their trading floor, and every year I go. So I just assumed that's where I was. I said, I was at my client's charity event. Don't fucking lie to me. That is not the way you want to do this. You do not want to start that way. And I said, geez, you know, I thought that I was.
2: Mm-hmm. And it
1: didn't always take place on 9-11. If 9-11 fell on a weekend, they wouldn't do it.
2: Right. And I, I'm
1: guessing that's what it was. The tone of his voice and his response then told me I had to invoke my right to silence. And he said, you sure you want to do that? I said, yes, I do. He goes, all right, well, I can't help you anymore. This mm-hmm. is, this is all in you. He goes, but can I ask you one more question? I said, and for some reason I said, yes. Why did you do it? And the first thing that came to mind was I needed the money.
0: So this is interesting. Like it's, well, I mean, that's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. So it's true, right? That's where your brain was at that time. That's where it's true. But was it true? Like, was it, did you actually need the money or you needed it to continue the lifestyle that you had?
1: I needed it to continue the lifestyle I had. I could have, I was making phenomenal money without committing the crime. I did not need to do that. And it was completely unnecessary.
0: Mm -hmm. So you're honest, you're honest. And this is like, I mean, it's, I thank you for sharing that part because I just think it's, To show how one decision can lead to something else, to something else. Before you know it, you're like, whoa, whoa! whoa, how did I get here? Like, how did this happen this fast? But a series of conscious decisions leads you into this place. And now all of a sudden life that you're used to becomes very different.
1: Extremely different. I like to think of it as, you know, the snowball on top of the mountain. Mm
0: -hmm. By the time
1: it gets to the bottom, it's an avalanche.
0: Mm -hmm. What a great analogy. Yeah. And
1: that's pretty much, that's pretty much what happened. The, the next thing was, you know, after that, I, I pled guilty because I was. I tried, I tried with my attorney. I tried to say they made small errors in their criminal complaint. Some of them were typographical. Some of them were semantics. There was very small things, but I went through just looking for something that would get me out of this thing and I said, no, that's not quite right. I didn't do that. They got that wrong. It's like, it doesn't matter. You're guilty. If you fight this, you're going to get a longer prison sentence. At least if you plead guilty, we can negotiate a lower sentence for you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, okay. And I had to admit that I was guilty, even though part of me still wanted to fight it. That, that ego, that fighting part of me wanted to really just, I was like, no, I can, I can win this. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I couldn't.
0: That's ownership though. You just said, you said earlier, like the definition of ownership to you is freedom. And that is, I think that that point of deciding and stating and saying this, yes, this is it. That's ownership. That was, I wonder if that was like, was that a a start of a point in your journey of acceptance of where this is, this is where life is at right now?
1: What a a great insight. And no, acceptance didn't come until much, much later. This was, it was ownership, but it was also a little bit of ownership out of fear. Okay. of that threat of a longer prison sentence. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, still the idea and still that hope that maybe I can get out of this with just probation. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can yeah. not get a prison sentence. You know, there's there was that hope. So I said, "Okay, let me let me plead guilty. I immediately paid $100,000 towards my restitution mm-hmm. right off the bat." and i did that and i'll be quite frank i did that to buy myself out of a prison sentence
0: hey that it's there's nothing wrong with that that is like i think that who would want to spend more time in that than than they had to
1: yeah yeah and it was so, it was go ahead sorry no no
0: it's okay so so you were in prison for 2 years federal prison not not quite 2
1: it was i was sentenced to 24 months and how how the System works is they do. There's you have good time, which is a smidge over ten percent. So I got um, I got about three months off my sentence. So it was twenty one months total. But of that, fifteen months was actually in prison. The remainder of that was divided amongst the Brooklyn halfway house. So there was four months of actually living in a halfway house and two months where I lived with an ankle bracelet, but in my own apartment and reporting to the halfway house once a week.
0: So there, I mean, like all the different transition levels that you went through there. And I know from our conversations of when we spoke that you really spent a lot of time in the library, in the prison. Like that was that, was that, was there a point um, in time that that became a place for you where you found some solace in learning and spending time in yourself? Or was that something that came later
1: it was, it was my retreat in the very beginning. Um, it, it was certainly just this place to go. I was so fortunate with the prison that I went to. We had an amazing library. We had approximately 7,500 books. Oh, wow. Um, it, was, it was a nice, cute little library. It had individual desks. They were small little cubes with the, you know, the dividing uh, walls between them. So I was so lucky to have that. And in the beginning was, I, I've got to do something with my time. You know, I have to because I am living in so much shame. I am living in this, this, I told you so, my heart telling me that, that I, I, I have to do something. I have to, I have to fill the time. Prison's all about routine. So it was definitely finding that routine And the library was a huge component of that. I would wake up around 540 in the morning so I could get to the library to do my meditation before anybody came in and I would have it to myself for a little while.
0: Yeah, I listened to that on your TED Talk where you talked about how meditation became such a such a part of your daily routine and something you wanted to try before but there wasn't time. So you dove into meditation then. How long would you meditate for and what was that experience like?
1: I started with I think it was 20 minutes. I started doing 20-minute meditations and I had um, I was able to get from somebody else i had a, a digital watch that had an alarm on it which was the worst way to come out of meditation was <laughs> just this beeping yeah it was just this beeping but i i got i got used to it and i'll never one of my first meditations i was on top of this snow covered mountain with the most beautiful views and that was almost it, it it's like the alchemist you know the when they talk about when they talk about beginner's luck is that the universe wants you to keep doing what it is that you're doing. So they give you that beginner's luck. Well, I feel like I got shown that little flash in the beginning so that I would continue with meditation. It was so, it was so hard though to, to practice meditation in prison because of my mindset, where I was physically, where I was mentally, that I had never done it before that I used to, doing things really well, used to being successful, you know, even though I didn't feel worthy of that success, I still was, you know, used to being successful. And here I am trying to close my eyes, barely understanding what meditation is. My family was great. They sent me some books on it. So i had read some things, but I, I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. So here I am trying to, you know, stop my thoughts, block the thoughts, you know, exactly what you're not supposed to do in meditation. and.
0: Good luck
1: with that. And, yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. And you know, I, I realize now, you know, when my friends will say to me, like, "Oh, I can't meditate; my mind races way too much," and I said, "You have to understand something. A, you're not special because everybody's mind races.
2: Mm-hmm. It's completely
1: all normal. All of us. We all have what is it? Seventy thousand thoughts a day. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's that's not that's not at the point is not blocking it out, and the the most importantly it's to be you know compassionate with yourself and to just actually sit down and do it, you know, is one of the most critical components. And it's called a meditation practice. It's not meditation perfection.
0: It's not med- I actually have used that before. I'm like it's not meditation right. perfection. It's not because it's it's whatever it looks like. Sometimes I will sit outside at this really big tree in my backyard. It's quiet back there. I will sit in my chair and I will just literally look at the tree and I will just practice breathing for 15 minutes and I'm not Technically meditating to music or doing anything, but that is just my let's get present moment. Let's be present Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, I think that's absolutely meditation. I think meditation. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing that gets people so confused Meditation can take so many forms I think when I'm having a really good workout Mm -hmm. and I'm only focused on my workout and each rep and my breath and all of that That's meditation. True. That's
0: true. I agree. I completely agree um, so I listened to your Ted talk and I know, um, so powerful. I will link it in the show notes, uh, literally so powerful. You Thank talked you. about, Oh, I mean, seriously, I commend you for how you shared. And there's so much value in that you shared, uh, about meditation and how meditation really helped you to be present and to be in that space. And then that it, correct me if I'm wrong. Did that start to lead to some of the images that you were experiencing and some of the of what you were going through. So I almost still see this internal struggle in in you, as we spoke about earlier, where it's like, you know, I'm okay, I'm gonna focus, I'm gonna meditate, I'm gonna do this thing because I know it's good for me. And then over here we still have the internal struggle of the shame going on, the unworthiness. And so this it's, it's constant it's this battle that's happening.
1: It was a huge battle, and I'd love to share a story that I think will tie this all together. Absolutely, it was a it was a couple of months into my prison sentence. I realized that I was safe. I went to a facility for other white collar criminals and nonviolent drug offenders, so I realized that I was safe. And all things considered, my prison was actually quite pretty. We had landscaping, we had a gym, we had a um, a wall that we could use for paddleball. You know, there was there was it was a a tennis net it was on a parking lot but there was a tennis net so that at least was really cool we had picnic tables so i'm sitting at a picnic table by myself it was a gorgeous gorgeous fall day i mean just stunning and i was i was journaling on how i got gotten there
2: mm. and
1: i start looking at i start looking at the shadows of the the leaves of the trees above me just kind of dancing on on the table and i get lost for a second and It was in that moment that I can only describe it as a direct download from the universe of what truly matters in life. It was so crystal clear. It, I mean, it just it filled me. It was family, friends, freedom, peace, integrity, courage, gratitude. All of these things poured into me. And I realized how foolish that I had been For all of those years, the lifestyle that I had created and that I committed a crime to maintain, and and seeing all of this and feeling it, I remember saying, "Holy shit! I just got the secret of life." Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Some guys were playing handball over in the distance, and that the ball, you know, whoop whoop, hitting the thing, snapped me out of it, and I looked around, and I see that I'm still in prison. And I said, I'm going to die before I get to put any of this to use. And the reason I tell that story was it was so, it was such a beautiful, powerful moment, but it fueled my, shil- my, 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 my shame and my guilt even more. So my meditation practice was filled with this secret to life. And I'm the one who destroyed everything. And eventually, that dug a neural pathway into my brain. And my brain created this short movie of what my own suicide would look like. Very, very real. I could feel everything. I could feel my resignation in that moment. I could feel the bullet exit through the back of my skull. I could feel my body slump forward. And at first it played that movie, you know, the monkey mind. It flashed that image, you know, a couple of times and and I would I would I would brush it away. I'd, I'd say, no, no, I don't want to think about that. I couldn't brush it away any longer. It became in my thought patterns every second of every day for four months straight. And it just became more raw and more visceral every single time it replayed. And it got to the point where I had to make it stop because it was just It was driving me insane. I would go to sleep at night and I would, I I would, you don't cry in prison. You're not gonna be that guy. So I just held it inside and I would go, please let me die, please let me die. Please kill me in my sleep. I would pray, please kill me in my sleep. Please make it stop, please make it stop. Please make it fucking stop. And eventually sleep would take take over. I basically chant that until I fell asleep. And every morning when I woke up, I was disappointed when I would see the light of a new day and realize that I had to go through it all again.
0: You were living in a prison, in a prison, in a prison. Like, it's like, it's not just you are physically in the prison, but the, I mean, to be in a state of wanting to start meditation, to be something good for yourself. And it turns into this. It's like you're living in a prison, in a prison, in a prison. Like it's just smaller, 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 trapped in that seeing that that's the only way out and as that becomes smaller like what happens is, is shame takes over right shame is just it's just completely driving the wheel and controlling you at this point and saying that this is just there's no other way this is the only way so
1: yeah there were so many layers to to the yeah. onion there were so many layers to the onion it was so many different prison cells and it just I I love the way you say it. it's kind of like the, um, what is it? The Chinese dolls. They just get smaller and smaller and smaller. And I in turn was feeling smaller, smaller and yep. smaller. Yep. And it was, it, it, it was the ignoring the voice, understanding the secret to the universe and to living a good life, getting that gift. I believe that we are on this earth to love and to be loved. I think love is the greatest gift of humanity that we possibly have. And my wife was absolutely incredible,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: such an amazing woman, and I lied to her and I told her that it was okay, and she told me that she was leaving me, and I totally understand that. And I fully believe that I destroyed the greatest gift that we have of being alive, which is love. And since I destroyed it, how could I possibly ever be worthy of love in the future? all of these things combined into those multiple prison cells that you referenced and just drove me to that point of beginning to plan how I was going to kill myself.
0: Mm -hmm. And where was the turning point? Because it was, you were very descriptive in your TED Talk. Like I can't, for you to be that descriptive, I can't imagine how descriptive it was in your own mind.
1: Oh, it was... And the TED talk has to be 16 minutes. I, I had to cut some of the details. I mean, the, you're not kidding, the, the color of the walls, the way the, the paint was chipping, the, the chair, to the, every single detail was so clear and just became clearer with every time that it replayed. And here I am dealing with this vision, thinking about how it is I can kill myself with my limited resources inside prison. I can't tell anybody because if you mention suicide in prison, you get locked in solitary confinement. That scared me so much to think of being in this state and then being locked in solitary on top of that was so utterly frightening to me. I couldn't mention it on the phone because our phone calls are recorded. I couldn't put it into email because emails are read. Couldn't tell any of my friends inside prison who were some amazing, incredible people and who would have supported me Mm -hmm. out of fear that they would tell a guard. Out of concern for me. So I bottled it all up for those four months. It was a Wednesday afternoon when my best friend, 30 plus years, Sean, emails me. He says, Hey man, I'd like to come for a visit this weekend. Does that work for you? That alone was almost instant relief, the weight off of my shoulders. Sean is Sean's the guy I can tell anything to I can share anything with him. He's not going to judge me He's going to listen to me. He's going to support me I can at least get this story out of me and not keep it bottled up because the more I bottle it up The more it just it hurts, you know, it just hurts So it takes forever Saturday finally arrives. I see sean's truck pull in I i'm 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 giddy with excitement that I get to get this off of my shoulders He buys some food from the vending machines. We find some seats. I'm ready to tell him. I'm ready to unload. This is it. This is my opportunity. Thank God for this. I open my mouth. Before I can say a word, Sean starts speaking. He's spilling his guts. His life is a mess. He's getting a divorce. He's got work issues. He's got money issues. He, man, my friend Sean, he's a tough, tough dude. And he's got this sadness in his voice that I have never seen or heard My friend in those 30 years, and it was at that moment where I realized Sean drove two hours to come to federal prison to visit me because he needed me, he needed his friend. I had at that moment a full understanding that I had value and that I had worth outside of all of those things that I had thought for so long made me worthy. And that was my turning point.
0: I there's so much in that. I love that I mean your friend Sean still obviously this whole no judgment, I'm a friend, could I could use some help. He comes to you. He's not coming to help you with your train of thought. He's coming to ask for help. Yet his his him doing what he did helped you tremendously, even though he had no idea at the time.
1: He, he didn't know. Here's the amazing thing about how much realizing that I had value and worth in that moment, how, how impactful this was. I didn't tell Sean anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't even tell him the visions that I was having for four months and even tell him the suicidal thoughts I was having. I didn't have to, it literally, it literally that vision stopped. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just so meaningful to me and Sean didn't find out until I shared with him the chapter in my book that details all of this because I wanted to make sure he was okay with it I wanted to make sure that he was okay with it and he might he might get after me for saying this on 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 a podcast for everybody to hear but the girl he was dating at the time when he read it uh, she's like he had tears in his eyes
0: hmm well, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful message, and I think it, we spoke earlier and the fact that it's when we can make our thoughts, when we can stop, it sounds bad, stop thinking of ourselves or challenge ourselves to think outside of ourselves and see that someone else is in a struggle. And as soon as that happens, it's like, oh, wait, I can make this not about me for a second. I can stop. We're not doing it out of ego. We're just trapped. We're just trapped emotionally at that time. And it's hard to see anything else. And then all of a sudden we have someone who's reaching out and we then become a little bit of a lifeline for them. And it helps us. It's like, it's our lifeline. It helps us to create change.
1: It it really does. And it's, you're right. It's not ego. We just get trapped in our brains. We get trapped in those prison cells. It's very much having blinders on our eyes where we can't see anything else and it just becomes what we know, but then yes, something comes into our lives that allows us to look beyond ourselves and to look beyond our own issues and to see somebody that we love and care about in a place that we don't want to see them no. ever, ever. And it just was, there were so many layers to it. It was feeling empathy for him and feeling how bad he was and realizing again, that he came to see me His brother lived a few houses away, and they are very close. He could have just gone and seen his brother a couple of doors down.
0: But him coming to see you literally probably saved your life.
1: I would, hands down, absolutely. It absolutely did. And then, I believe, so I believe the universe sent Sean to me at that moment. I I 100% believe that the universe sent Sean to me. And to reinforce that message, the universe sent my mother and my aunt the very next weekend. My mom flew up from North Carolina to go to my mom or my aunt's house in Connecticut. They made the lengthy drive down to come visit me. And my aunt and I have talked about it. And she goes, we started getting, she goes, obviously you didn't say anything in email, but she goes, you started getting, and we both did. My aunt was dealing with some health issues at the time. We got real deep, as deep as we could in those emails without throwing any red flags up. Mm-hmm. And she knew something was... She knew something was afoot, and I, the universe, sent them as a reinforcement of like, um, you know, hey, dummy,
2: you, you, you Wait, do, you do have.
0: A- please listen, yeah. <laughs> please yeah. listen. I, I've I've gotten many of the universe messages, universal messages saying, "Please listen. This is over here." Um, I love that you mentioned too, and I, I think this is I I want to ask selfishly at the same time. But I also think that a benefit from the listeners. I am a parent who has struggled with you know with teen substance abuse. We unfortunately had the experience, unfortunate, fortunate, of dealing with attempted suicide. And firsthand, I was the I was there to one to see it. And I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, Well, they just have to hit bottom. They just have to hit rock bottom. And you said something, and I don't know if it was one of our conversations we've had that I think is really powerful. Because there's two full questions I want to ask in it, but the first is like reaching somebody when they're at that state. Like, what does that look like? And sometimes it is not reaching in to fix it. It's that sometimes there's this universal like message a person that comes in. But you made a mention about it's not the rock bottom. Bottom. It's those first steps out of rock bottom that are powerful. That that's where change happens. Because everybody can hit bottom. But staying there would be a choice. So where can you think back to the point where it's like, okay, yes, Sean comes to visit you. Yes, this feels like a bottom. Maybe I don't want to stay here. What are some of those first steps like to create change when you're at that point?
1: The initial thought that I had was I have to give meaning to the suffering. That was the first thought that I had was I have to give meaning to the suffering. And it was, it was more the suffering of my wife and my family. And I included myself third, but there was still a tremendous amount of shame involved in that. So I felt a little uncomfortable including myself in that, but it was I have to give meaning to the suffering I've caused. So that was the, the first thought. Then from there, and I've only realized this after i got out of prison and i started writing my book and really analyzing what it what it was that i did that were those first steps and they were i can see them so crystal clear now and i think they are so important for for anybody for anybody going through almost anything
2: mm-hmm. it is
1: it is i call them the the 3 a's it is accepting reality accepting responsibility and accepting choice. And I will, if you don't mind, I'll jump right into accepting reality. So here I am sitting in prison. My life is a complete mess. I wanna give meaning to the suffering. And I'm sitting in the prison library, you know, my, my, my cozy little home, except somebody grabbed my desk, so I couldn't sit at my desk, so I was annoyed by that. I was annoyed that somebody beat me to the library and got my spot. I started thinking that I was annoyed that I was in prison. I want to be home with my wife and my dog and my cat. She had already told me she was leaving me at this point. So that was even more of an impossibility than the fact that I'm locked in prison. I wish I wasn't in prison. My, my voice told me not to do that over and over again and I ignored it. I wish I had listened to that voice. I wish, I wish, I wish. And I'm sitting here wishing all over the place for everything to be different than it is. And I grab my pen and paper and I just write I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon I accept that I made the choices that I made I accept that I'm getting divorced I accept that my finances are ruined I accept that I'm going to have this label of federally convicted felon till the day I die I wrote I accept to all of these things and when I did that it hurt like absolute hell it's stung to admit all of those things. As I was writing, I remember thinking, why am I doing this? This is stupid. This, it, it, this hurts. But I, I kept going. And when I finished, I got a little bit of freedom inside prison yeah. because I was able to look at it and go, I have a starting line. It's not the most optimal starting line
0: but it's a starting line at least right
1: but it's a starting line and i'm no longer and it it does all this all hit me when i finished writing this this paragraph of acceptance it all hit me at once of i was living in the past and the future by saying i wish i had listened to my voice i wish i didn't make that choice i wish i wish i wish that's all in the past the fears of being labeled a federally convicted felon, that is all projected into the future and how that's going to impact my life in the future. So I'm, I'm in the past, in the future, simultaneously completely missing the present moment. And that acceptance put me in that present moment with a baseline and a place to start.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That was such a huge step for me. The next step was that accepting responsibility. That didn't come for a little while afterwards. I was still getting used to the accepting my reality. I was still, I was still getting my feet wet in that. Accepting reality was, was an interesting one for me, where you know, we would sit around all the prisoners and stuff like that, and we would complain about the government and how 90%, 97% of all cases go to a plea deal. Uh, you know, the government basically uses their, their strength and their force to get a plea deal. And everybody's using this statistic as this crutch. And as I'm sitting there listening to these people, I'm like, you burned a building down for the insurance. You wrote 4,000 scripts for oxycodone or oxy- right. whatever, you know. Like, you know, I'm like, I know I-
2: <laughs> go ahead, sorry. Yeah I, like, yeah, I was like,
1: I know what you all did. And I started journaling on that because it kind of annoyed me a little bit at the hypocrisy. And I turned the mirror around and I was doing the same damn thing. I was playing a victim to circumstances. I was playing a victim to all of it. And when I finally was able to say, I did this, Mm -hmm. this was my choice. I knocked the first domino down then nothing else would have happened. Those consequences would not have occurred had I not knocked that first domino down. And I'll, I'll I'll give a really powerful example that liberated me in this accepting responsibility. It was at sentencing, the prosecutor misstated my net worth by the sum of over $400,000. So not a small amount. My attorney didn't address it. He wrote me a note during during sentencing. He said, do not, don't mention this. So I, I let it go. And, and I was so pissed for so long that this prosecutor had the audacity to lie in court and misstate my self-worth. And I played the victim to this. When I really truly accepted responsibility, I understood a couple of things. And I'm going to use that domino analogy again. Had I not knocked uh, that first domino down, that man would never have known my name. He would never have even had the opportunity to, which I now realized once I got over that first hump of realizing that he wouldn't even know me, he made a mistake. He made a careless mistake. I know exactly where he got the number from. It was from an, um, an old report that was acknowledged by both sides as being inaccurate and should be thrown out. He made a careless mistake. That's all it was. And he would have never had that opportunity to make that careless mistake had i not made the choices i made and that was so liberating and that was so freeing to be able to do that and that also steps into accepting responsibility then turned into the i'm responsible for my life i have didn't feel like it at the time but i can create agency in my life i can choose what i do and that led into immediately into accepting choice everything is a choice Absolutely. Every single thing that we do every single day is a choice. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to what you had originally said. I burnt my life to the ground and I was living in the burnt ashes of what was, and I can choose to stay there or I can choose to take those first steps out. And it was kind of, I realized I had already taken those first couple of steps, but understanding that later in this third phase for me of accepting choice, it all came together. And then it was, I I choose who I get to be in this moment. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I choose to to do what it is that I want to do and to create what it is I want to create. And those were my first three steps out out of rock bottom.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that because I know it's not a case of people say, well, they hit rock bottom and then they come back. I'm like, no, it's not. No. (laughs) First off, and I mean, the thing is, is no matter what, I mean everybody's bottom is different. Everybody's, we can't look at somebody and go, but that, because I remember that being said to us once, well, wait wait till they hit the bottom. And I'm like, but my bottom was like, like a year ago. Like I wouldn't have been been here. It was like a long time ago. You can't compare bottoms because we're all in different spaces and where we are. And I just think that creating, I think I love what you shared there as far as like accepting reality, accepting responsibility, accepting choice. Like, Applying that to anything allows you to create change, and I literally could talk to you forever because we have so many things that we could we could talk we could chat about. I just wanted to touch on one thing that like I did a podcast once on on blame and ownership can't live in the same place. And I think when you're talking there, as, you're, as you were sitting, everybody's sitting there in prison discussing the scenarios and, discuss, and how everyone else is at fault, like when we're in a space of blame, we actually can't take ownership. They're completely polar opposites to each other. And so every time I catch myself in a space of blame, I'm like, eh, nope, there's a red flag. You are not owning something. What are you not owning? So does, does that resonate with you? Does that make sense as far as blame and ownership?
1: Oh, completely. Absolutely. And I love that. And thank you for sharing that because they do, they are polar opposites. They cannot, they cannot exist in the same space that's physically impossible. Um, and to, to, to put blame, we're, we're immediately we're putting everything outside of ourselves. And I believe when we put things outside of ourselves, we're relinquishing our agency and our, our control over our own lives. We are putting things we're putting things outside of our control, and it's it's very very stoic philosophy of what is in our control and what is not in our control. Anything not in our control, we let that go, and we focus on what is in our control. And blame immediately throws everything out of our control. We're just relinquishing it right 100%. then and there.
0: hundred percent. I actually wore the Serenity Prayer on my wrist for years. Like I'm talking years. And it was every time I would feel like I was, because I was retraining my own brain. Every time I was feeling like this was um, what can I do to fix this? I'd be like, okay, so grant the things. Okay, right. It's not mine. It's not mine. And I used to literally just go through this process of like, that's not mine to own. Okay. So let that go. What's mine to own. And I had to, it was like, I was teaching myself in the process. So it's not, I can completely, again, we have very different stories but i can i so resonate with the messages and what you're saying and it's not a case of we just hit bottom and then we just create change it's this dance back and forth that happens until we get to a state that we are in a stronger state of being able to apply the lessons that we've learned to our everyday life because like let's be real like life and shit happens all the time it's, it's not pretty in rainbows the second you decide to step out of rock bottom. It's like it's challenges and it's all of these things. So you, we have to be able to apply the lessons that we have learned on a day-to-day, situation-to-situation basis in order to create change.
1: I fell so many times
0: mm-hmm.
1: on my journey out of rock bottom. I, I, I fell countless times. It is a long, hard, arduous journey.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: One that is so well worth it yes. to go through, but there are times where I did question, "Why am I doing this? Why am I?" This is so I, hard. This is this, this is so hard. I could I could go, you know. I mean, I remember thinking like I could just go move in with family,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and I they'll they'll take care of rent and I'll I'll have a, a home and I can just get a unfulfilling job,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: and you know just be just go to that and just live this this empty life because you know there are times that sounded easier mm-hmm. because the journey is <clears throat> excuse me it's really it's it's really hard
2: mm-hmm.
1: and there's there were for me and I'm curious about for you those epiphany moments those epiphany moments that almost seem to come exactly when you need them when you're on the journey and it's so hard And it's the idea of throwing in the towel and being done with it. And then an epiphany comes so crystal clear, download from the universe, whatever it may be and go, oh, oh, I get it. Mm -hmm. And it's this, it's this, it's this upward trajectory that falls down and then slingshots you when you get that epiphany up higher than you were in the first place. And then it's just, it just is this continual loop. And it, you know, understanding that this is something else too, and I, I don't want to get too far off track, but it's the understanding that everything is temporary.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: hated it when really, somebody really... said that to me before. <laughs> Just being real, I hated at the time, hated it. But it is true, everything is temporary. I mean, if you live, I again, I'll butcher that quote, but if you if the highs are too high and the lows are too low, like you, you have to find like even the highs are temporary. So when things are going amazing. Like you it's not there forever. It's going to it's you're going to come back and things are going to be challenging again Somebody is going to be sick. Something's going to happen Not being negative, but it's just we can't live in super super high super super low We have to everything's temporary i say that I say that to myself on a regular basis that everything's temporary
1: well, I think what's so utterly important about that is this goes right into gratitude for those for those moments of highs to be grateful for them and to to ha- express that gratitude for them with the knowledge that it's temporary. Yes. And I think that is such a huge component of that is I'm grateful for this now. I'm not waiting for the other shoe to drop but I understand the flow and sequence of life
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: things are going to change.
0: Yes. I don't yeah. know
1: how they're going to change but this high that I'm feeling right now is not going to last forever and man am I, I am so grateful that I'm experiencing it right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that gratitude helps.
0: Oh, the gratitude practice is huge. I mean, I used to want to punch somebody in the face when they said, do you practice gratitude? I'm like, gratitude for what? Like, look at where my life was at. And then it was just, I had to practice gratitude was the simple, simple, very small things, which actually is more important anyways, because we need to be noticing those things throughout the day, as opposed to just the real, again, the really highs, and the lows. I just nope, what am I focused on today? What do I see today? And we can train our brain to see it to see two sides of the coin at any time. And that's perspective of what we end up looking at and seeing. So I think it's absolutely powerful. You are doing incredible things with your story now. And I think this is just um, I want to make sure I give enough time to say, you know, I think it's powerful. You speak from a space of how important vulnerability is. And vulnerability is the way out of holding on to shame. How do we get to vulnerability? Like how does a person who has been living in shame, who is, I mean, I, I work with clients all the time about this and we just start to talk about vulnerability and they just break down. Like, I'm like, we haven't even talked. We haven't said anything. And I think it's because shame is so, such a heavy emotion that we're carrying so much of that vulnerability is like a way to start to be, to um, lead away from the shame and learn how to do stuff. But shame is so freaking powerful. It's so powerful. So how do we get there?
1: There are a few different avenues and I would like to share the one that made a really big impact in my life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's actually... Self-trust. Self-trust was a massive avenue for me to be able to get to that vulnerability. The the fact that I didn't listen to my heart for those thousands of choices that I made to perpetuate my fraud, I had zero trust within myself. That voice disappeared for a very long time, and I, I was lost without it. I realized that I had to rebuild trust. And I did not know how, and again, probably the universe. My friend put something up on Twitter of all places. The surest path to self-confidence I know, making and keeping commitments. Mm. And that struck me, it was so powerful. And I I said, what commitments did I make? When I read this, I was already out of prison. And I, I said, what commitments did I make in prison that I'm not keeping. And it was to conquer my fear of public speaking. And I knew that meant I had to go to a Toastmasters meeting. That seemed to me to be the the easiest avenue to conquer that fear. So I read that tweet. I Googled. I found a meeting. I committed to going to that meeting. Walking outside the door scared the hell out of me. Walking in the door scared the hell out of me. Everybody was friendly as could be, but it's still mm-hmm, scary. Mm-hmm. And I had committed to also volunteering if I didn't know how a Toastmasters meeting worked. But I volunteered if they looked for volunteers. I said I, I'm committing to do that. So they asked for volunteers. Mine was the first hand to shoot up, and I remember looking at my hand, going, "Who did that? I said, Where did that come from?" I get up. I get up in front of the podium. I speak for 26 seconds. Sit back down in my chair. Got a round of applause. I have no idea what I said. No clue. <laughs> because so,
0: like, it's so scary.
1: It's so scary. I have no idea what I said. But, and this may sound so utterly ridiculous, but when we have a fear that big, I, 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 rem- I said to myself, I faced my biggest fear and I did not die.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: made and kept my commitment to myself to not only attend the meeting, but to volunteer and speak. I immediately felt a little bit of trust in myself. I immediately felt that. And so I started making and keeping commitments and rebuilding that trust within myself. And the more I learned to trust myself, the more I got comfortable with sharing my story with others. Because I also knew that if, if my story were to own me, then I don't own my life.
0: I'm just a, I'm just dropping a mic right here in the, in the, in the Zoom over because I always say that like you either own your story or it owns you. It's one of the two. It's and mine owned me for years, years. It owned me, and all of a sudden, when you are in a space and you flip that, it just changes everything.
1: It completely changes everything. So for me to to really answer your original question was I had to build that trust in myself first to get to that place of vulnerability and to understand that if i allowed that story to dictate my life it would dictate my life for the remainder of my life Mm
2: -hmm. and i
1: had the opportunity to change that i could choose to change that and that would be to when i gave really was this was the the big turning point of sharing my story was again at a toastmasters meeting the first speech that anybody gives at a toastmasters meeting is called the icebreaker and the icebreaker is exactly as it sounds I could have talked about my childhood. I could have talked about my professional career. I mean, it's anything that gives the people in the room an idea of who you are. And I jumped into the deep end and shared that I had gone to prison, that I was suicidal, that I lost everything. And the the, the jaws of people just agape at me saying this. And as I was speaking, I almost started crying. It was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But again, I sat down in that chair when I was done and I didn't die and I felt freedom.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. That really opened the door for me to understand the, to borrow from Brene Brown, the power of vulnerability and how unbelievably liberating it can be. It's one of the most frightening things that we, we have the opportunity to do but the magic that lays on the other side of being vulnerable is, is beyond reproach
0: i really. you, you don't know what it feels like till you do it it's just it's until you actually take that jump and learn how to be vulnerable with it it's it's incredible your um, oh, again so many things how do we overcome the fear of judgment of others? I have my own answer to this, but I just want your answer is the fact that with vulnerability, like most people don't because they're afraid of what others are going to think or say. And I've heard you multiple times now that you start your sentence with like, I'm a federally, like it's right in the sentence, right when I first, when you meet someone. I like that. I think I, I commend you on that because that's what I started to do when I was sharing what my book was about because I just couldn't even make that leap to say it. And then I'm like, you have to put it in the conversation. You have to start practicing. Like You have to put it out there. So, But the fear of judgment of others is what stops a lot of people from being vulnerable. How do we overcome that?
1: That is by doing a tremendous amount of deep inner work. And that is by knowing who you are as a human being. And it is... So I am a federally convicted felon. That is a statement of truth. That is absolutely true. It's not who I am.
0: No, I love that you say this.
1: It's something that I did. Mm -hmm. It was a series of mistakes and choices that I made, Mm
2: -hmm. that I made
1: a significant price for. Mm -hmm. But it's not who I am. And if somebody chooses to view me in that light and to view me poorly because of that,
2: Mm-hmm. That actually
1: has nothing to do with me. That is on them. That has nothing to do with me, and that is what I think we need to understand. When we have that fear of judgment, is by taking that leap. I love that you said that. Taking the leap into vulnerability, and that's how the trust comes in. We have to trust ourselves that when we leap, we are going to get those wings, and those wings are there, they're on the courage that we did it, and and how somebody responds. We cannot, back to the Stoic philosophy, we cannot control how somebody responds. We can only control how we respond. And that is in controlling who we are, knowing who we are. Mm -hmm. knowing. Now for me personally, certainly not that mistake. I wouldn't trade my life for anything. I wouldn't change my experience for anything. I get to use my story i'm so privileged and so lucky that i get to use my story to help other people who feel right now how i used to feel
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that you can you can judge me any which way you can but i know the work that i do that i do and i know who i am
0: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't it's water off of a duck's back
0: yep you decide but, if you carry it or not right like you decide if somebody is 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 putting their judgment on you. That's completely on them. If you let it stop you from what you're doing, then that's your choice. And and you're giving that power away. Meanwhile, there's like like hundreds of other people who are praying for the message that you have. That's what matters. Like that is helping people who want your help or want your guidance or want to learn from you. So by you stopping, because you're afraid of what this one person over here is going to judge you you've got all these other people who are praying for a solution you have and they just become the priority that's how my brain looks at it it's like they're looking for support and help that's where my energy goes
1: that, i love the way that you just said that because it really is we're we're worried about the one person
2: mm-hmm. that
1: has a potential to judge us mm-hmm. i mean this mm-hmm. is the you know this this fear this fear is such an illusion because we're already projecting into the future that there is one person out there that's going to judge us. And we're afraid of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We don't even think about the thousands of people that we could possibly impact by sharing our story. Yeah. And I think that just is such a testament of how powerful fear is and how powerful shame is that we focus on that, that one person that think, may judge us, that may judge us. That's they not will. Even a...
2: <laughs> They will. Well, they're out there. I promise they're they, out there.
1: <laughs> there, there, there definitely are. I work with uh, a group of formerly incarcerated people, people who are in, who are going into the system, and who are also out. You know, we had our phone call um, last last night, and identity was the topic, and we was talking about shame and that label. And people always look to me like, how do you, how do you work through that? And I said, I, you know, it's very important. You touched on it before, but it's our past cannot define us without our consent. No we choose to let that in and if again somebody wants to label us that that's on them it's not on us and it's just learning who we are
0: oh i think it's powerful i think all the work that you're doing is powerful i love how you're giving back in ways that you do i love that you are now coaching others your ted talk is going viral you have a book coming out I just, I love what you've done with your story and how you're using it to impact so many other people. And obviously it's making a huge difference in your life because you can see that you just, from the space that you're at, it looks like, yeah, I'm going to use this for good. Like I'm going to use this story for good to help someone else.
1: I feel that it's my obligation. Mm -hmm. I personally feel that it's my obligation of hitting that rock bottom and coming out And going through that journey, this is, it is very much, uh, you're familiar with the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think
1: it's, you know, it's going through and going into the innermost cave, but coming back, that final leg of the hero's journey is bringing what you've learned and sharing it with people. Mm
2: -hmm. And that is,
1: it is my obligation to do that, to have gone through everything I've gone through it almost feels exactly like we were just talking about. Instead of worrying about that one person, thinking about the thousands of people out there that could, be, that could benefit from this. You know, it's the, my story is my story and it's unique, but the emotions that I feel and felt are the same as somebody else who feels shame, who feels unhappiness, who feels sadness, whatever it is. You know, and I think that's, that's what's so important.
0: Absolutely. I just, yeah. Again, I love everything that you're doing. I think it's really powerful. I know it's going to make a big difference in the world and people who are looking to create that change in their life. I think you're definitely somebody who's going to help them with that. I know somewhere along the way, our paths are going to cross again in different ways because we just speak two very similar languages. And i This doesn't happen to me too often that I actually get to meet with somebody who lives and breathes in that own your story and be vulnerable. And I I love it. Absolutely love it. I think it's, I I love what you're doing. Uh, Where can people find you? Where can they connect with you, follow you, your books coming out? What, where can we find you?
1: So we can go, my website is Mm craigstanlund.com. I hang out quite a bit on Instagram, craig underscore stanlund. I'm gonna be launching a Kickstarter campaign to fund professionally self-publishing my book, which is called The Blank Canvas, How I Reinvented My Life After Prison. I'll be launching that Kickstarter on August 11th. So if you could be on the lookout for that, I would be so grateful and so appreciative. And my TED Talk, How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. Um, if, if, you, if you guys could watch it, if you could share it with anybody who you think needs to hear the message, that's really, that would it would mean the world to me.
0: I will be sharing that this afternoon. I will let you know when the podcast will air, but I will be sharing that this afternoon as like a preview. This is um, who I had the pleasure of speaking with today. So I, again, we could talk for a very long time. This will be go down as one of my longest podcasts, but I had, it just was such a great conversation. And I thank you so much for sharing with us the way that you did. It was really, really powerful. I have one final question for you what Please? lesson in life are you most grateful for
1: our perspective dictates our reality and the greatest gift that i received from my entire experience is my perspective on life yeah
0: yeah
1: that would that would definitely definitely be it
0: that's wonderful. Honestly, thank you so much for your time today. For how much you shared, how real you were. I love real. I love people who are real, and you definitely did that. Um, you know what? I, I just I'm really grateful that our paths crossed, and I thank you for all of your time and how much you shared with us today. And I know you're going to be doing incredible things in the world. I cannot wait to help to promote what you're doing and to get a copy of your book. So thank you so much for being here today, Craig.
1: Marsha, thank you so much. And can I take a second to acknowledge you because of your vulnerability and the way that you own your story and the platform that you have created, that you have people on to, to share our stories, to be able to create these things. Because when, we, when we're vulnerable, we give people, others permission to be vulnerable. And it, you've created such a beautiful and amazing thing And I've had an absolute blast today. And you're right, we could continue talking. (laughs) (laughs) No, I
0: I, thank you. This this was my dream when I first started this podcast was that I wanted to create a space for people to be able to share stories of how they've overcome something and be able to give those tips and share to impact others. And yes, I've had incredible guests on and I've had incredible stories on. This, your story right now, is really the epitome of why I started the show. Like this is literally like, where can we go from, how do we go from point A to point B? And I, you gave so many valuable tips and tools in this episode alone. It's just, this is exactly why I created the show because when we own our choices, we ultimately own our life.
2: We do.
1: And I love that. And thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the work that you do. It's incredible.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.